Fear is pervasive. I'm not talking about the fear when we're crossing the road and a speeding car is coming towards us. Rather, the fear that we call by so many other names so that we don't have to admit that we're afraid. Uncertainty, anxiety, doubt, uneasiness, disquiet, even nervousness or apprehension. Some more words that we particularly like, stress, concern, and perhaps our favorite, worry. Fear, by whatever name we want to call it, is certainly not always rational, but it can be crippling. It's a really good acronym for fear, false evidence appearing real. Now, fear is a powerful weapon. It blinds us to the truth and reality of a situation. Fear robs us of the possibilities for success, for joy, for growth, for relationships, friendships, and understanding. Fear makes us defensive, and it isolates. Fear can affect every single person, but rather like COVID, we see the symptoms manifested in some more than others. What makes one person afraid doesn't necessarily affect another in the same way. But we're all afraid of something. Whether it's, what will they think of me? Will they like me? Will I look foolish? Worry about making the right decisions? Fears for our children, for our parents, for our work, for our finances, our health, our retirement, or even our final days. Today, I want to look at how fear is manifested by the different people in this fairly straightforward story. We're going to first look at our neighbours and then the leaders and the parents before turning our attention to the blind man. So let's start with the neighbours. As we read in verse 22, anybody who believed that Jesus was the Messiah would be thrown out of the temple. Now the neighbours were excited to see what had happened to their friend but it seemed that they thought the best thing to do was to bring the blind man into the temple to see the Jewish leaders. Once they had heard that it was Jesus who had healed him. In many regimes today, the best way to protect yourself is to report others. Otherwise, you too risk being found guilty. But perhaps we should give them the benefit of the doubt. And they just wanted to give glory to God but somehow we don't hear anything further of them in this story. They don't back the man up. It seemed they soon scarpered once they realised just how upset the leaders were. Perhaps this is not something we particularly resonate with, but there are many countries around the world where such fear would be very understandable and very real. So let's turn our attention to the Jewish leaders. Now, I have to say, over the last eight chapters, they have been very consistent. Pretty well, they've been upset at everything that Jesus has said or done. And we have to remember that they will have seen this blind man every time they went in and out of the temple. But evidently, they didn't really see him. Last week, we heard how the, the leaders were ready to stone Jesus for his claim to be the Son of God. And they knew their scriptures, these leaders. 
they knew that God had told them to rest on the Sabbath. So they were incensed by Jesus' insistence on his repeated miracles on a Sabbath. Perhaps understandably, they couldn't quite understand how a man claiming to be God's chosen saviour would break his own laws and work by healing on a Sabbath, and in this instance, also work by forming the mud from the ground on the one day of the week when they were meant to rest. They had become so fearful of the consequences of breaking God's law that they had created additional laws and rules to cover every single aspect of their waking lives. And not just for themselves, but for the whole of the Israelites, the whole nation. Rather like a fence within a fence. The trouble was that it was become, they were becoming so worried about the minutia that they had become blind to the very God behind the laws in the first place. However, their fear was more widespread than the fear of God's displeasure. They were absolutely terrified of losing their power under Roman authorities. Any uprising or rebellion could have devastating consequences, not just for the leaders, but for the whole nation. But perhaps closer to home, they were afraid of being wrong. It was utterly inconceivable to them that as learned scholars and priests, that they could be wrong. They had spent their whole lives caught up in the law and the right way of doing things. Everything that Jesus said and did flew in the face of what they believed. And what a person believes largely dictates who they are. So the fearful consequences of being wrong were too much for them to even contemplate. So what did they do? They tried to make the evidence fit their preconceived template. And when that didn't work, they resorted to angry accusations and finally throwing the man out of the temple. How often have we been so adamant that we are right that no fact or argument would sway us from our position. It is as if our whole identity is dependent upon us being right. Now, at this point, I have to admit that I discovered the rather uncomfortable truth that I really do not like being wrong. My wonderful husband very gently explained to me the other evening that I tend to say, if you say so, rather than admit that I'm wrong. And obviously, I was very grateful for such an insight. <laughs> but I was left with a challenge. Why am I afraid to be wrong? Will I totally unravel as a human being if I am wrong? Fear tells me that. It tells me that I will cease to be. I will cease to be acceptable or loved if I'm wrong. The Jewish leaders feared losing control and respect, and this was intertwined with their faith and therefore their identity. And that is a really scary place to go. It would certainly explain why the Jewish leaders were less than enthusiastic to accept Jesus as the Son of God. He didn't fit their expectations, and it was far too risky to let this man from Nazareth walk in and rewrite their carefully constructed rule book. 
Perhaps this also gives us an insight into the attitudes of non-Christians. Following and believing in Jesus requires upending everything we like to believe about ourselves. For example, we're good enough, and of ourselves, our morals are fine, and we can do everything on our own. To have to admit that all of those notions are lies and to put our trust in God is a fearful thing for many people. But we'll come back to that in a minute. No doubt many of you are far more humble than I and are not burdened by the need to be right. So maybe you don't identify with the neighbours or the leaders. But how about this final pair that we will talk about, the parents? The culture at the time was to believe that a child born blind was the result of either the parent's sin against God or even that the child himself had committed a sin in the womb or even his soul had committed a sin before that. They believed that the soul was capable of sinning before a person was born. Now today, many parents battle with the thoughts that they had caused their children's disabilities. But to have a whole culture believe that God was punishing them for some sin that they wouldn't necessarily even know about, that must have been very hard. I do wonder how many times they brought sacrifices to the temple to atone for their sin. Did they blame each other? Did they blame their son? Those are really heavy burdens to bear. To live with the fear that they had somehow sinned against God and everybody, absolutely everybody knew and no doubt judged them. Now they were up before the leaders and their fear is palpable. I'm sure this must have been an overwhelming time for them. On the one hand, to see their son healed, that must mean that they're forgiven now they can worship together in the temple, for their son would not have been allowed in. Forgiven and accepted. But all of that is slipping away, depending on how they answer the leader's questions. So they agree that this is indeed their son born blind, but that's it. It perhaps seems strange to us, but by telling them that their son had indeed been healed by Jesus, would no doubt being mean, would mean being thrown out of the temple. Excommunication doesn't mean an awful lot to us today. After all, if you leave here, you can nip down to Emsworth, to the Baptist Church, or the Methodist Church, you can go into Chichester. But to this couple, being thrown out of the temple, not only meant being banned from the temple, but there would be a knock-on effect their friends and neighbours would not be allowed to do business with them. In effect, they would be shunned from every aspect of life. And this would continue if they moved to another town or village. This is the reality of their fears if they came to fruition. So perhaps we can understand how pragmatic it seemed to them to choose the sensible path of non-commitment, trying to sit on the fence it often seems sensible in our culture not to rock the boat or particularly today many worry about causing offence. Now I don't know who all these easily offended people are 
but the concern about offending somebody certainly seems to trump being honest or even factual. But the parents knew better than to question those in an authority. After all, they assumed that the leaders would, knew better, would know better than they themselves. But fear had blinded them to the evident joy. Their son was no longer blind, but they were afraid of all that they would lose and the blind and the fear blinded them to seeking out the one who had healed their son, Jesus, the Messiah. Surely that is what they would do. But the neighbours, the parents and the leaders were all imprisoned by fear. So what about the blind man himself? It's perhaps hard for us to imagine his life. Disgraced from birth and condemned to a life of begging outside the temple, which he wasn't even allowed to enter, he would have sat with many other beggars waiting for those who entered the temple to have compassion on him and give him a few coins so that he could survive. Now usually those who are blind have excellent hearing, so this man would have heard the insensitive questions of the disciples, who were, after all, merely voicing the belief of the day. Who sinned? The parents or this man? I do wonder what the man himself might have answered had he been asked. However, his heart must have leapt for joy when he heard Jesus' his response. This rabbi was certainly different from any that had passed him by. This man, Jesus, saw him as worthy, as of deserving God's love, just as if he had been any other person. The compassion in his voice must have been enough to persuade this man to trust Jesus with this very strange healing. So where is the fear? This is perhaps the one person in this story that you would expect to be afraid. After all, he was the only one who couldn't see what was going on. But no, it seems that he is totally without fear. He happily lets Jesus apply this mud to his eyes and then he has to make his way down to the pool of Siloam to wash it all off. He doesn't even ask to be taken there. And he certainly appears to have no fear of looking stupid covered in mud. This story seems to echo the Old Testament story of Naaman, who was sent to the River Jordan to wash himself clean, to, uh, to be rid of leprosy. However, Naaman moaned and complained and had to be persuaded by his soldiers before he eventually did as he was instructed. And then he became healed. Who knows, perhaps in this, this story was in the blind man's mind when he made his way to Siloam. But can you imagine what it must have been like when returning, seeing for the first time? He must have been totally disorientated and overwhelmed by joy. His whole life had changed. Used to being led by others, he seems quite at peace with finally going into the temple that he had sat outside for his entire life. Perhaps he thought that the leaders would be overjoyed, just as overjoyed as he was. The first miracle of its kind. For God was indeed merciful. 
I'm not sure he was even remotely prepared for the frosty reception that he received. Any fear that he may have had as a blind man seems to have dissolved. And here he stands, a man full of faith and confidence. He's not afraid of these powerful Jewish leaders. And he's certainly not in the least bit worried about the questions that he, he can't answer. Where is Jesus? Or even how did this mere mortal perform such a miracle? He can't answer them, and I don't think he cared. I can imagine that he probably watched and wondered why these leaders found this miracle just so hard to accept. Now they tell him to give glory to God. And that's not what we think. This phrase harks back to Joshua 7.9, when a man called Achan disobeyed God's specific instruction to collect no plunder when raiding the town of Ai. Instead, he did collect up some plunder and he buried it in his tent, which then brought the wrath of God on the whole of the Israelite people. Joshua challenged him with these words, my son, give glory to God, the, the God of Israel, and honour him. Tell me what you have done. Do not hide it from me. Achan then confessed his sin. By telling this once blind man to give glory to God, they were expecting him to amend his story. I don't know what to, whether they thought that it was a trick or magic that he was healed but they were looking for a flaw in his story. Obviously, this was not going to happen, as this man had indeed, indeed been giving glory to God right there in the temple, in front of everybody, by confessing that Jesus had indeed healed him. He was once blind, and now he sees. He even tells them that he's following Jesus and goads them with the question as to whether they too want to be followers of Jesus. And this is the final straw for the leaders, and they throw him out. But being banned from the temple holds no power for this man. After all, up until now, he'd never been allowed in. So nothing has changed. He's impervious to their threats, their accusations. Faith does that. Now, outside the temple once again, the man is again rejected and alone. But even worse than before, because his parents and neighbours seem to be steering well clear of him, lest the leaders also target them. Now, he'll certainly physically be able to work, but nobody is going to hire him as a religious outcast. But in his bewilderment, Jesus seeks him out and asks him the most important question that we can ever ask anybody. Do you believe in the Son of Man. Adjusting to relying on sight rather than hearing, he doesn't immediately recognise Jesus. And we have to remember a lot has happened to him in the last few hours. So understandably, he replies, who is he, sir, that I might believe in him? Jesus' reply must have thrilled his soul. You have both seen him, and he is the one talking to you now. Everything clicks into place and he realises that this is the Jesus, Jesus standing in front of him and he worships him, calling him Lord. This is more than he would have done had he just thought he was a prophet. 
He has already demonstrated that he is fearless and he is now confirming his faith and trust in Jesus as his healer and his saviour. As a Jew, he is well acquainted with the term son of man from the book of Daniel, which unfortunately we don't have time to fully unpack this phrase. But implicit in this term means the son of man is that he is the eternal word who took on human flesh and offered himself as a sacrifice for our sins. He is risen from the dead and one day he will judge all the living and the dead. He is the one in whom we must believe. Now this once blind man may not have fully understood all this, but that really didn't matter. He trusted Jesus. He could have denied Jesus and slunk back into the temple if he'd really wanted to. But he evidently realised that in that moment, not only was he no longer physically blind, he was also spiritually able to see. He was no longer blind like the leaders who he'd had to deal with. Now this story is not just a story of physical healing, but it is intended to demonstrate the gift that Jesus gives us. Jesus seeks us out. We sometimes like to think that we initiated the relationship, but like the blind man, we were helpless, dead in our sins until God chose us. We had and still have nothing of our own to merit being chosen. If we did, we would share in God's glory. But just as opening the eyes of one once born blind is something that only God can do, so saving a soul is something that only God can do. It takes his mighty power to impart new life to everybody who is spiritually dead in their sins. Paul confirms this in 2 Corinthians 4 when he says, Satan has blinded the minds of the unbelieving so that we might not see the light of the gospel of the glory of God, who is the image of God. So how can we gain spiritual light and spiritual sight? Jesus answers this question at the end of the story when the Pharisees ask if they too are indeed blind. He tells them that if they had admitted their blindness rather than justifying themselves and denying the reality of Jesus and also the miracle that he had just performed, then they could have been forgiven and healed too. Paul explains this, for the God who said, light shall shine out of the darkness, is the one who has shone in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. So just as God's power spoke into it, spoke light into existence so his power also opens the blind eyes when he saves the soul doesn't that thought fill you with excitement hope and joy we have the same choices and opportunities today at the start we looked at fear and what that plays out how that plays out in people's lives the examples are all relatable for us today fear of being ostracised, persecuted, or even losing our comfortable place of privilege. But the cost of fear is immeasurably huge. 
As Christians, the Bible tells us again and again not to fear, not to worry, and not to be anxious. If we choose fear, worry, and anxiety, we are turning our backs on the light that is Jesus and choosing darkness and blindness. There's no halfway. We can't have one foot in the dark and one in the light. Shadows aren't an option. Fear is dark, cold, and isolating. Trust is light, warm, and connecting. Fear is a hopeless prison offering false security. But trust is freedom offering hope and eternal life. Put like that, why would we ever choose fear or any of his aliases ever again? If you find yourself in a dark place of fear or worry at the moment, that's quite understandable. But Jesus comes to change all that. All we have to do is confess our fears and he will forgive. And by his Holy Spirit, he will fill us with peace and trust. After all, Jesus is the light that has overcome the darkness. And when we shine the light of Jesus and his word onto our fears, they flee. Let us pray. Lord God, Heavenly Father, you know our worries and our concerns. You know when we are afraid and forget to turn to you. Thank you that you never leave us or forsake us. Thank you that there is nothing that ever can separate us from your love. Neither death nor life, angel or demons, neither fears for today nor the worries about tomorrow. Not even the power of hell. No powers in the sky above or in the earth below. Indeed, nothing in all of creation will ever separate us from your love revealed in Christ Jesus. So Lord, help us to turn again to you and shine your light on any fear so that it will flee and we can bask in the light of the freedom that you have given us. Amen.